Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Animates. I'm Chris. And I'm Paige. And uh, as you can probably tell by the title of this episode and the sort of weird accent that Chris is doing, uh, we are going to be covering Cartoon Network's absolutely masterful 2014 miniseries, Over the Garden Wall. Over the Garden Wall is a 10-episode show that originally aired in 2014. Um, it's... Not explicitly a Halloween show. It's more a fall show with a lot of different influences that um, span... The the word page I've heard used the most is Americana. And it really is a fairy tale in a, a fairly dark style. I mean, I think... The most apt comparison, for me at least, has, has always been uh, Brothers Grimm-style fairy tales where kids are in bad situations and shit is fucked. Um, there are serious <laughs> In other words, there are serious consequences and very dark undertones. For sure. It's, um, it's a really beautiful show. Um, I would say first, a uh, little background. So like Chris said, this is 10 episodes. So there were 10 11 minute episodes that aired over the course of five nights in November of 2014. So again, not explicitly Halloween because it, it aired just after Halloween. So they didn't make it into like a Halloween special. Um, it was created and executed by Patrick McHale, who was an animator. And I think he was an animator. He did something on Flapjack with a lot of other modern Cartoon Network greats. And when he left uh, Flapjack, he went on to co-develop Adventure Time with Pendleton Ward. And stayed on as creative director of Adventure Time for the first five seasons. And then he was approached by Cartoon Network to develop this series uh, at the time that he was uh, wrapping up his stay at Adventure Time. This came about at a time where the, the cartoon, the Holy Modern Trio cartoon renaissance had been very much in full swing at this point. So it came at a time in which more experimental stuff was happening and where definitely in-house they had already generated a lot of cartoons in sort of like the post-2010 style of whimsical but uh, dark or complex undertones, generally moving cartoons into this like nice complex artistic space. And you see a lot of this in the character design for the show, which is stylized. I don't want to say simple. It's stylized in, in a way that is more simplistic, but not bad or ugly to look at in any way. Which stands in stark contrast to the way that the rest of the show is designed, so the backgrounds in particular are incredibly detailed and make use of uh, distinct sets of color palettes and shadow. Yeah, I, there's some uh, writing on the subject of the backgrounds being inspired by Grisail paintings, which are, it's a style of painting and a movement of painting where the entire uh, piece is executed with it in monochrome, you, most typically in shades of gray, but sometimes other neutral colors. But the backgrounds also really remind me more than anything else of like classic Disney gouache backgrounds that very, they have that very mid-century, super detailed, just lush feeling to them. They would fit very well in this like Snow White, for example. Yeah, absolutely. They're less vibrant than you would see in Snow White, but very, very similar. You, that whole scene where she's running through the forest, right, and the trees are grabbing at her, um, mm -hmm. and they're made to look like creatures sort of, like, grabbing at her, that scene is very much something that you could see in this show. 
Yeah, absolutely. It would not be out of place at all. It has the the same kind of vibe. If you kind of think of some of the scarier Disney moments from the mid-century, that, that will evoke some of that, the feel of this animation, of these backgrounds. Uh, as you would expect, from the the Pendleton crew really got to come up with a name for them I still haven't settled on what we're calling them I just, as a school. I think of them as flapjack alums okay so flat do I I'm, I'd like to come up with some sort of stylized title for all these people who flapjack alums is like the I think it's the most descriptive moniker in the sense that it they, they all come from there. But it's like, are they Pendletonians? Um, Flapjackians? And I think that, that like, calling them Pendletonians really erases the work that, like, J.G. Quintel and Pat McHale have done, you know, because, like... J.G. Quintel was Pendleton's boss, you know? Like, so I want to make sure that other people get the credit that they deserve. Um I like I guess probably the the best way to refer to them without like leaving anybody out would just be animation renaissance creators. Yeah. Eventually once we start doing those shows that'll probably come back up. If you out there in listener land have an idea for something to call these people, um weigh in. We'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, so this show is very positively received. Uh, it won an Emmy. It's not really surprising. Uh, if you've had an opportunity to see it before, almost everybody's impression was was very positive and very surprising in the sense that I wasn't... This is one of those things that kind of popped up. It was like it was happening and it popped up and it was a huge surprise. Like, it wasn't something that I, I had seen advertised very much. It was just like, wow, look at this very beautiful thing. And it just it just sort of happened out of nowhere, at least from the sidelines, which was great. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I it came out during fall of my senior year of college. And it was during fall finals time basically for us and nobody watched it or anything and then I came back from winter break and everyone was like have you seen this yet it's like it's so beautiful it's so masterful um and it it really is and I think it's really groundbreaking in a way because Cartoon Network had never done a mini series before and I really don't think that children's animation uh children's television animation had been allowed to be this sort of, um, uh, like, had been allowed to have this particular kind of depth or tell this, tell a story in this particular way before this. Like, this is something that we've seen in, um, like, children's animated movies or in non-Western animation for children especially, but not really in U.S. children's television. It actually sits... It, it's, like, kind of weird because there's a limp... Uh, there's a lot of whimsy to it, but the whimsy is subdued. When you see things like Adventure Time, the whimsy is sort of the forefront. Like, bright, absurdist, very wacky... Uh, a fair amount of toilet or, or slapstick humor. Um, but this is, this stands in stark contrast to that in the sense that there is, like, there's playfulness to it, but the dark, uh, the dark tones are the overtones. That's really yeah. what Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a very subdued and sort of calm show overall. For example, there's a scene in episode uh, six, I believe it is, um, on the ferry where Wirt and Greg, the main characters, get sort of chased around the ferry by frog police. And it's sort of your conventional sort of slapstick old school chase scene set to music, but it's very subdued. Like it's sort of slower paced. The music is quieter and it's like the sort of most calm, chill version of a madcap chase scene I've ever seen. And it generally 
even at moments of really high tension in this show, it just feels very understated in a way that something like Adventure Time or even Gravity Falls never does. The um, For those who are listening, just uh, a fair warning on this. Uh, because it's so short, uh, we're going to try to avoid spending a lot of our time on summarization. I mean, there are going to be spoilers if you care about watching it from start to finish. I would recommend you do so. Some things may not quite make as much sense without the context of it. So if the words frog chase <laughs> don't mean anything to you, um, go watch it first and then consider listening. You can do it in a single sitting. It's basically as long as a movie. So go do yeah, that. Yeah, and I would say both of us without getting too much into like rating the show or anything, I th think that both of us would highly recommend watching this show. It's super worth your time. Yeah, A, I mean, I'll give it a, an A plus. So that, that like, we don't have to get into it. That's just more, I recommend you go see it now. But, yeah, absolutely. Uh, for those who um, are still with so us. Yeah, um, so maybe uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the voice cast of the show, um, now that we've sort of addressed its creation and its tone, this is a really star studded cast, especially for, again, something that's on television. So we've got the two main characters, half brothers, Wirt and Greg, and Wirt, the oldest, is voiced by Elijah Wood, giving a fantastic performance as usual. Uh, and Greg is voiced by Colin Dean, who is, you know, sort of a journeyman voice actor basically Beatrice their bluebird companion is voiced by Melanie Linsky who is an actress from New Zealand that you would probably recognize as oh her in a in a wide number of things like I think my first exposure to her was in two and a half men as a kid that she played like their crazy neighbor but she's also she's a really good she's like a journeyman actress um like a character actress and she's uh, really talented and does a great job in, in this. Um, and the inimitable Christopher Lloyd is in this as the woodsman. Um, Greg's Frog is voiced by Jack Jones, who is primarily a jazz and pop singer during the 1960s because Greg's Frog does a fair amount of singing. Um, and the Beast... The main villain of the show is voiced by Samuel Ramey, who does do some acting, but he is primarily an operatic bass, so he is primarily an opera performer. Uh, and then in some of our smaller characters throughout the show, we have other big stars like John Cleese, uh, Tim Curry, Chris Isaac, who is another singer and musician, Thomas Lennon, a lot of big names, uh, as well as really, you know, journeymen actors and voice actors uh, lent their talents to the show. Yeah, sort of both ends of the spectrum on that one. Big and, and not small, but less pronounced in terms of fame. Definitely, uh, yeah. I would say that this show does not include any of like, there's none of those big name voice. I guess Thomas Lennon really does do a lot of voice work. So you might say that he is one of those big name voice actors. But most of the big names in this show are primarily known for uh, screen acting and not voice acting. The um, There were quite a few directors in, in terms of the show. And it, it's not, again, it's such terribly long. Um, but... I think what's interesting to note is that the, the music for the show takes a lot of inspiration from a variety of eras. The show is anachronistic in a lot of ways in the sense that it, it takes a lot from like American folklore and jazz and folk music and spanning from like the, the mid 1800s to um, like the 1930s where you've got like ragtime but you've also got um, like jaunty jaunty folk tunes so we've got a lot like even to very subdued fiddle playing that you would hear like if you were walking through 
Um, like a town in Mississippi. It would be like the soundtrack to that town. Um, so- yeah, definitely. You've got ragtime and soft shoe and folk music and even jazz and all all kinds of stuff. The A lot of effort was put into the soundtrack of the show. The music was uh, was composed by the Blasting Company. So in this case, we're not talking about um, <clears throat> sort of a single named individual. This was a bigger production, and, and, and which makes sense because they needed, they probably needed ensembles to do a lot of this music. Um, yeah, absolutely. So. And um, there's also like a few songs that get. Uh, performed as like elements of the plot so things like um potatoes and molasses or over the garden wall itself um the highwaymen you know their adelaide parade there is a fair amount of in a way that kind of the best other example i have is like steven universe where just singing is or it honestly in a way it kind of is reminiscent of lord of the rings too we're just songs and singing are a part of what is happening, a natural extension of their interactions amongst themselves and with other people as they're on this journey. The, the show does follow. Um, now that we've sort of got the foundation here, the show does follow uh, a fairly linear plot with each episode consisting of a vignette they're in a different location with a different group of people each time and each is its own self-contained slice thematically story-wise there is an overarching develop like overarching developments are occurring and are spliced into each episode the primary one being um these boys are lost there is a beast afoot and we're learning about the boys, the beast and the woodsmen and their relationship to one another and why particularly the woodsmen and the beast are, are doing what they do and what they do. The boys are experiencing a variety of very strange, surreal situations uh, that range from unsettling to funny to uh, sweet to terrifying <laughs> and we've got uh, so you can approach each episode as its own deal or you can watch them back to back yeah and when watched back to back they it really becomes a primarily a coming of age story um, in with a couple of different facets, uh, the major ones being grappling with the concept of death and grappling with what it means to be responsible for someone smaller than yourself. Uh, I would say those are some of the major sort of coming of age themes that get explored in the show as a whole. Um, I, I think that, um, the show definitely touches on it, it like alludes to and takes inspiration from uh, a lot of established tropes and stories. Um, for example, there's a scene where our little boy Greg is dancing on the table with uh, an older man wearing a top hat whose sanity we come to question, which very much alludes to something like Alice in Wonderland uh, in that same episode, it draws from English sensibility and architecture, which is also which also very much helps to structure that uh, reference to Alice in Wonderland. Simultaneously, I feel that episode is also referencing Edgar Allan Poe. You know, the concept of being in this sort of massive decaying mansion with a person whose mind uh, and sanity are also potentially decaying. Their sanity is in question. It's 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 brought together what seem like a lot of really disparate influences in a way that still manages to be very cohesive. Yeah, and we there is another 
scene where it's sort of like a strange comment on it's sort of like a strange version of oh my god what's the story called where the lady cuts her hair for money and the guy like gift of the magi yeah yeah the uh, o henry story yeah it's very it's very um gift of the magi a little bit um more more in the sense that you've got a lot of uh preconceptions going on there's this rich man who comes in who runs the school and he he basically to everybody looks like an asshole who's taking fun away um but he's really giving a lot um in order to keep this school running that episode by the way is just amazing because um you have animals in human clothing who can't talk but understand human language learning to to read and write in a school in the middle yeah, of nowhere. Yeah, I would say that's definitely, as much as we're talking about how this is a pretty, like, dark and serious show, that is definitely the funniest episode in the show, and it has some of the best visual gags. Like, for example, the asshole guy, he looks like this huge, burly guy in this overcoat, and he takes off the overcoat, and underneath he's actually this tiny little skitty stick of a man, and it's just a really fantastic visual gag. That episode, by the way, features the amazing original song, Potatoes and molasses which sounds fucking disgusting like i'm sorry greg you did not improve everyone's bland mashed potatoes by adding fucking molasses to them just so everybody knows i i actually had this impression as a child because molasses is referenced in a lot of old cartoons that molasses is some kind of delicious sweet uh thick concoction and it's really not Molasses is gross alone. Like it goes great with sweet things to give it this nice, deep, uh, smoky flavor. It's what makes brown sugar brown. But like, imagine uh, if you had like gingerbread, but like not as sweet, and that bitter sort of smoky flavor was amplified by like a thousand and it wasn't bread it was like sticky goo that's molasses <laughs> and so they just pour it on these mashed potatoes it's horrific <laughs> it's gross that's like so disgusting um yeah it's just horrifying <laughs> and, and, but the tune the tune uh there are going to be kids some kids out there that go mommy can we have some molasses on our potatoes and those are going to be some very disappointed kids and some very yeah, annoyed geez. parents. I don't know. Maybe we should do a Patreon video where we eat potatoes and molasses. Oh, shit. Let's <laughs> do see that. How it is. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that on the back burner. Um, <laughs> uh, so if you we'll do a vote online. And if you would like us to see if you would like us to taste test potatoes and molasses, we will we will consider doing that for our loving our loving audience. Um, I, there, there are a lot of big themes that get talked about here. I mean, you can't escape the very existential nature of all of this. Um, you don't ever see anybody die. Like there are, there are really sort of horrific moments. I I would disagree. You see Adelaide die. Oh, you're right. You do. It's very much a, a Wicked Witch of the West situation, <laughs> except instead of water, it's fresh air. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, you do see, like, a big horrific wolf get squelched between a water wheel and a building. The dog, well, it turns out it was a dog and it had eaten this gross, dark turtle. And it, like, is fine. But it makes a lot of really gross, crunching, squelching noises. And it's just it's just very gross. Um, I What's guess- really interesting to me is that the sort of terror and horror of the world that we're experiencing, in the very first episode, that horror is brought completely to the front and then immediately subverted. And then the horror recedes into the background until about halfway through the show 
when it becomes front and center again. So for about the first, oh, I would say episodes like two through six, there there are lots of things going on which are very frightening, but they're sort of happening in a way where it's like our main characters are really never in any danger like no one really bears them any particular ill will and they're not at risk but there are very objectively terrifying things happening around them all the time uh yeah unlike alice in wonderland the the rules inside of a vignette are inconsistent or or chaotic once that like when they're in the schoolhouse the schema of a schoolhouse remains there. Like there's the teacher, you listen to them, things are gonna be fine. So we have, they, they basically have some scripts to follow every time um, in these different situations. But for example, some of that still gets subverted in very unsettling ways. When they go to Pottsfield, for example, this is the, like, they, they implicitly believe that there are people here, they will be helpful, um, we won't, like, we, we know what to expect. <laughs> and that is completely and utterly destroyed to really great effect. That episode is very, to me, it was sort of the first time that capitulated that this isn't really a horror story, this is, a, like, a creepy story. Um... You know, skeletons wearing pumpkins and and making you think like they're going to fucking kill you, but really yeah, they're just going to make you do community service. Really interesting because the Pottsfield episode in particular, the most recent time I watched Over the Garden Wall, I watched it with my boyfriend and he'd never seen it before. And because I'd seen it a couple of times, the Pottsfield episode has lost its edge for me to a great extent because I know how it ends and I know that they're never actually in any danger. And it becomes, once you know that they're never actually in any danger, it all becomes very charming, actually. But Blake hadn't seen it before and he didn't know how it had how it ended and it reminded me of what it feels like to watch it the first time because he was saying what the fuck is going on here like something is very wrong like something is not right in this place what's going on and I was like oh yeah that's exactly how it feels to watch that the first time it's really unsettling it's very clear that something is wrong and off in this town from the first they uh I, I love I love to fucking rep this this whenever I get the chance. But Frank McAndrew, um, my mentor, who is now my colleague, which is crazy to me, um, <laughs> does he's a psychologist who researches creepiness. And again, I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to again um, because Pottsfield is normal adjacent. So there's a lot of stuff that we're used to seeing, but it's skewed. Um, for example, all the pumpkins, they have human features, but they don't move. Or they move in jagged, rough ways. It's like there's a village, but it's depopulated except for everybody in a barn. Um, they, they talk in a pleasant manner, but the things that they're saying are are weird in a, in a way that suggests something isn't absolutely correct All right there's this giant figure with this booming voice that moves like a human but definitely isn't a person so there's all of this stuff that's like they're not overtly scary there's no weapons they're not carrying pitchforks they never directly threaten, nor do their features connote this anger or um, anger or f any sort of negative emotions. It's kind of like subdued emotionality with skewed human features. Um, they do capture Beatrice and say, where do you think you're going? And I know for me, that's the moment when it turns from creepy into scary is when they, they overtly move 
to hinder them. Until that point, your brain doesn't know, like, this is creepy, be alert, but don't be afraid. And that is just like a clear sign that like, oh no, well that's, that's bad. Now I'm afraid. Now this is a scary situation instead of just a creepy one. Yeah. And it's funny because they, they build up like terror and then subvert it twice within the course of an 11 minute episode because they build up that terror there and then subvert it by having them being sentenced to manual labor rather than death. And then when you notice they are building, they're digging holes uh, and are chained up and everything, they build up that terror again, uh, peeking when you see a skeleton crawl out of the grave, but also again being subverted when you find out this entire community are skeletons that they are in a type of afterlife community where they are and that like nobody was ever in any danger. This is they're just uh, celebrating the harvest of new members into their community. Right. And so even though it's just an 11 minute episode, they build you up to a place of like a lot of fright and then subvert that to let you know not only should you not be scared, but they're you didn't ever need to be scared. There was never any danger to begin with. Pottsfield, a happy retirement community where people can live in peace. <laughs> I can just see, like, if anybody wants to make a funny, like, retirement home commercial for Pottsfield, <laughs> uh, that would be that would be like a fun little project. Yeah, and, that would be fun. That would be um, great. Yeah. We, um, and it's this, there's a similar kind of situation when they're in the tavern because there's the, the situation with the highwayman because he forces his way into the conversation to say, like, I'm the highwayman and sing this very creepy song about how he robs people and murders them to make ends meet. And the animation is very unsettling and the song itself is very spooky. And then everyone's just kind of like, huh, okay. And then moves on and then it doesn't ever have anything to do with anything. So it's like there's this terrifying person right there by them right now. But like it doesn't have it doesn't have anything to do with the story. They're just letting you know like that this exists and it's scary. But we're going to go ahead and move on. It's nothing you need to be concerned with. That episode in particular um, is is very interesting because it's a rainy night They've just been somebody like they've been on a wagon where they've been apparently chased by the beast. That episode is key for like some plot development. Things really sort of kick up in that particular episode. But it all takes place for the most part within this tavern with all of these people who have very clearly defined roles. And really, the boys are very passive except for the very end in that episode. They're very much just listening to people talk. And other people are doing a lot of the active stuff. Um, so you, you, you're like, you're kind of afraid. You're like, this tavern is really weird. But then you're like, oh, this is fine. Nothing bad is going to happen to them here. So um, the house with the big mansion, you do kind of get creeped out too because you think there's a ghost. And you also think like, is this, is their uncle, quote unquote, gonna like... Murder them, basically? Murder them? Is he is he a madman? Like, is he going to, are they in danger from him? Uh, is Auntie Whispers gonna get you? That's a great episode because it subverts the, the like... Rapunzel sort of deal where there's a person like some magical woman has trapped another woman and it's the hero's job to save her because she's mm -hmm. the one in danger. Um, it also subverts the idea the that fat and unattractive people are evil or bad in some way. Yeah, so that they're like that episode. You think like there's a lot of tension because you think they're gonna get eaten or attacked by Auntie Whispers. You know they've got to save this young girl, and you think like they get out, they escape, and you think, okay, you know this is how the story is supposed to play out. They rescue the girl, they get away, but it turns out that the fright 
is is at its pitch because the woman that you thought was bad was actually good and the 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 heroine or sorry the the damsel in this case in the in the trope the damsel is actually the danger so they 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 do a great job in that episode and i didn't see it coming when i first watched it i had i had no inkling of what was about to occur even though if you look back at the language there's nothing in the language to tell you is auntie whispers bad or is is lorna bad or good you 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 bring your assumptions to bear on what they say and your assumptions lead you astray and that that yeah. it's a very it's very very careful very carefully done. I think that also this show maintain creates a lot of its horror through a atmosphere, obviously, but also through that subversion of expectations rather than relying on like animation that's really scary or big jumps or anything like that. It relies on doing something that's different from what you expected. So it still catches you and it still is scary. Right. Which is something I, um, I really appreciate. And it, um, it also never commits the cardinal sin of showing the monster, which, uh, you know, almost everything that's scary eventually feels that it has to show the monster. But this show says, no, I don't. I don't have to show you the monster. I don't have to explain what the monster is. The monster is in shadow. The monster is inscrutable. Um, and the monster remains that way even as you escape from him. The um, uh, Another thing that is particularly prominent, so the, the show it is very concerned with roles the primary one being uh, the role between, like the role of Big Brother or a sibling guardian is a big one. I mean, it takes place between two brothers, so that is obviously more our focus. But Wirt and Greg are both, they, they are siblings by blood, and a lot of the focus is on Wirt not taking responsibility for Greg. And it's overtly pointed out in a couple of moments. And it eventually is used in a really effective way against Wirt, who um, essentially, it's a story where the only time that somebody really understands what they have is when it's taken from them. And that's and as a trope. That's a, that's incredibly common. That it takes a tragedy to realize what one needed to do and what one has failed to do. So Wirt essentially fails to be a good big brother until eventually he has to correct his mistake and grow in the process. So that role is primary to the to the major conflict of of this show. But there. Are, there's more there in, in individual vignettes and also in um, the brother duo. Because you got great. Would, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just would say, like, when it comes to the brother relationship, particularly the older sibling to younger sibling one, it's something that I can definitely understand as the older sister, you know, when the woodsman says when 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 Wirt tries to blame Greg for goofing off, goofing off or messing up or messing around, the woodsman tells Wirt, "You're the elder child. You're responsible for both of your actions." So while we see Greg continue to be really goofy and just sort of kind of running around and not taking things super seriously or paying that much attention throughout the show without really growing or changing. Kind of the idea, what changes is Wirt's reaction to that. The idea is that, of course, Greg is doing that stuff. He's a child. That's what children do. You are a teenager. You are older. You are responsible and you need to care for your younger brother 
because he doesn't know how to. It's not his fault that he's messing up. He's a little kid and you're responsible for guiding him and looking out for him, not blaming him for things that you're not happy about. I think in a a very interesting, like I think teenagers who watch this though, there's a lot to identify in that conflict between, because as a teenager, you don't really want to deal with kids. Like you're, you're, you're sort of trying to gain independence and focus on becoming an adult. And you're like, fuck, I don't want to deal with this kid. Like they don't listen, they're annoying. And I think that while the show focuses on the fact that that's not really, that's not the right thing to do, I think it is very relatable to, 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 to feel like words where you're just like, come on, kid, just please don't just, just like chill. I don't want to deal with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of like the big coming of age. One of the big coming of age things is is the idea that, yeah, absolutely, it's frustrating. You want to hang out with your friends and be cool and you've got this little brother embarrassing you and being a nerd, but like part of maturing and being an adult is understanding that children and younger people can be embarrassing and they can be frustrating, but it's your responsibility to look out for them. That that one of the things you have to learn to do in order to become an adult is to look out for smaller and weaker people, even when it's not convenient for you. I think it's important to note that Greg is a little bit of a handful, but he is definitely like he's, he's also not as much of a spaz as some kids are, Like he, for a kid, (laughs) his chaos has a lot of consistency to it. Um, And it's not like he runs around a ton. If, if Wirt would give any sort of effort to shaping Greg's behavior, Greg could be pretty manageable. Like Greg is able to listen okay and follow instructions okay. And so this is a case where I think that uh, uh, Wirt is partially to blame for his own situation because he isn't taking any active role in shaping Greg. He, he sort of just lets the chaos unfold and then he moans about the fact that the chaos is happening. Well, you can honestly say that one of Wirt's major flaws as he moves through the show is that he isn't taking an active role in anything really. And that's what he learns to do. He learns that he has to engage with the world, that he can't allow his neuroses and anxieties and fears to stop him from actively engaging with the world and working to shape his life and what happens around him. Yeah, and, and for Greg's, to, to Greg's credit, Greg's naivete is very shielding in the unknown and it's also incredibly altruistic. Greg's behavior is almost always directed towards some pro-social end. Helping animals, helping Wirt. Like, it's not that he's a bad kid. It's just that he's a child who doesn't know how to channel that into effective means. But he's still quite effective in numerous situations, like with the school, with picking up people's moods with potatoes and molasses. Greg is ultimately like a nice representation of a a very unfettered, altruistic person. Yeah, I I could definitely, you definitely could say that Greg has a pure spirit, basically. He's really imaginative uh, and sees the good in everything and just wants to help people and engage with the world in a way that is wholly positive and assumes the best. He really showcases that innocence and um, a goodness of childhood, which is contrasted with Wirt, who showcases the anxieties that come with transitioning into adulthood it should be noted that these are the only two human children that we see during their journey 
Yes, that's true, actually. Which is I actually mean, really creepy because of the beast. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, can you say that, like, perhaps all of the other children, you know, lost their hope, right, and were turned into Adelwood trees? Um, and Or, like, we hear other children referenced, like the woodsman's daughter or it's Beatrice. She's a child, too. She's just been transformed into a bluebird. And it gives the overall impression that this is a place that uh, is kind of like hostile to children, that children don't really belong in this environment. And from what we learn about it being sort of like a limbo, a space between life and death, at least in the modern Western world, that would be a space that is um, not super populated by children, right? That would be hostile to children, a place that children wouldn't be because children aren't supposed to be dying, right? Um, so the show, yeah, and the show, it's Greg is sort of our our, our, our great representation of, of the show is implicitly child, children are innocent and good, Um. <laughs> which we lose as we grow or, or at least it's expanded upon by anxiety and responsibility. Uh, the show in the sense of roles also makes great use of labels um, where each person very much has an identity centered around some, some distinct thing. This is accentuated in, in places like the tavern where people are literally reduced to a profession and they have individual quirks, but all of those quirks are filtered through. It's like, Oh, that's, it's weird because it's like, there's a tailor and the tailor is melancholy and he cries a lot. And it, it's sort of made to seem like that's what a tailor does, which is, <laughs> which is very strange to me. Um, but the show uses that to subvert it a lot. Um, but for example, Adelaide is supposed to be the good witch trope. Auntie whispers is supposed to be the bad witch trope and they're related. It's not a mistake that they're related. They definitely are like, we should do a wizard of Oz thing and yeah, absolutely. Flip it. And, and the fact that Adelaide melts is further evidence that they were very much channeling Wizard of Oz. On oh, that. absolutely. So the Adelaide is the good witch. Auntie Whispers is the bad witch. There's uh, like their tea. There's the rich man. There's the teacher. There's a like everybody seems to be mostly reduced to a, a, a concrete label. And then they kind of play around with it. But mm -hmm. it's it's very and interesting. Particularly particularly in the tavern, everyone is trying to assign that kind of label to Wirt. They don't seem particularly concerned with Greg, but with Wirt, they are desperate to figure out what his role is, how they can label him, how they can force him in to one of their preconceived uh, roles that people are supposed to occupy. And I think again, that's sort of like the bluntest commentary on the coming of age theme of the show that that we have throughout the whole 10 episodes where it's very blunt like becoming an adult means like fitting yourself into certain social categories and like people will try to force you into them even if you don't want to do that and you'll become in some ways like reduced to your profession or to your social category um, and like, because Wirt's becoming an adult, they're trying to figure out who he's going to be and the way that he's going to fit into society as an adult. And it's pretty blunt, but like, also it's like, oh, it's true, you know? Uh, it, it's interesting because even in Pottsfield, the leader is like empowered by the Pottsfield Chamber of Commerce. Like Which is a business institution, like not a government one. <laughs> like it's very weird because that's like strange bureaucracy popping up in, in a very unusual place. Um, very funny. It's a very it's it's such a little they they go through it so quick, but I found it I found it hilarious. The yeah, definitely. It's like he's just like the business leader of the community. You know, they have like a plutocracy. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
eventually, I think that they they use these labels to tear them down for the most part, which is nice. I mean, the tavern, you're right. The bluntest, most direct commentary is coming of age is fitting in. But every other time, they they make use of it and then they very easily go like, nope, this is not how it actually works for you in this story. So, very good. Very good. Definitely. Um, and I would say sort of the other major coming of age um, aspect that I think it's explored is the idea that all of the thing, all of your uh, like teenage anxieties, all of the things that you think are embarrassing and secret and that no one can ever find out because they would like judge you and that they're weird or unique to you as a teenager, all of those things are just being a person. Like the message is that like you think this is embarrassing and you're terrified to let anyone know about it. But it's like it's literally just a hobby that you have or it's literally just that you like a girl. And those are normal things that literally every human being does. And part of dealing with your anxieties and growing up is realizing that and realizing that it's okay to just like be a person and that not everybody is thinking about like you and the ways in which you don't fit in all the time. And there's interesting, they, they emphasize the fact that Wirt talks about Jason Funderburger throughout their journey. And we never get to see Jason until close to the end. And Wirt is like a nerdy, sensitive like he plays an instrument he writes poetry he's not athletic that's that's cool but we get the sense that this jason funderberger we use this schema again we apply this high school schema where we're like oh man Wirt is talking about this popular attractive girl and jason funderberger is like on the football team and he's going to be jacked and then they completely tear it down. They're like, fuck, no, this is like normal people and a normal social group. And Jason Funderburger is just as much, if not more, than a fucking nerd as Wirt is. And is yeah. less hot, like less eloquent than Wirt is. And For sure. He's like more of like a pathetic nerd than, you know, he just like tries to put the moves on the girl and like just completely fails um, in the way that Wirt is scared of doing and it's like you th almost think like he's trying to like hang out with like you know he's talking about people who are out of a social league or whatever but like these people are clearly his friend group they're also clearly like sort of nerdy or people like him even the girl he likes like she's the school mascot who goes to some kind of like goth clown thing for Halloween so it's like a totally like realistic person an attainable like partner for word like exactly the kind of person who would be interested in work right and i think what happens is is that work makes a mistake that a lot of people do which is they 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 see confidence and they they assume that that person is somehow like better than they are confidence is great but it's like jason funderberger's trying and clearly the person he's trying with is not interested. But Wirt still sees it as worst case scenario. Oh, they're both really interested in each other, which is just his neuroses popping through and preventing him from seeing things as they really are. Uh, but it's like a teenager, like a little vignette of teenagers, I think is great because that hat, like teenagers are like that. Where absolutely it's so a much super realistic depiction it's so you're there's so much uncertainty and fear and this journey is initiated because of this fear and where they end up because of it sort of as if to say in the grand scheme of things this is not important this will pass do what you need to do make a move yeah, and, and the whole idea of, like, 
when being in the unknown that you sort of the beast wins and you're defeated if you lose if you lose hope if you stop trying if you disconnect and withdraw that's that's also part of the message right that the worst thing that you can do is not fail the worst thing that you can do like the worst thing that you can do is is not to try you know is to disconnect that's that's so much worse than failing, right? Just, you got to do it. You have to be the master of your fate. And I honestly think that's like a pretty good, like, that's a pretty good pro-social message that, you know, the that adult life and becoming an adult is scary and stressful and it entails a lot of changes and you're not always going to get it right, but the most important thing is to just like actively shape the world around you, engage with it and try like that. Like there could be a lot worse messages, you know? Yeah. And uh, challenge your preconceptions because every time that we sort of relied on them during the show, things turned out to be completely different. That theme might bypass children a little bit. They might not recognize that that's something that, you should see but as an adult I think you should clearly take this as look beyond these labels and these surface qualities that you're using to stereotype or uh, are forming your expectations for situations because oftentimes they're unhelpful or at worst they can completely lead you to the to, away from the truth of something. Yeah, I mean, I think overall the show is really it's funny because it is a very sort of spooky atmospheric show that seems to be a lot about death in a lot of ways, but I think that's really just the window dressing and that underneath it's this very pro-social coming of age story. And in, in this sense Perhaps more than a previous time where we've spoken about this, it it has like a very dark premise, and it, it is shown overtly that like fucking children are ending up in this terrible place with terrible things happening to them, and the beast is using all of this deception and fear to hold a man essentially hostage, but. I feel like if this were an actual Brothers Grimm story, things would end up pretty bad for them. Whereas here, things end up being good for them. I mean, there's the frog at the very end of the show says, and that's the end of the story and everything ends up okay and everybody was satisfied with the conclusion. Um, which is sort of like a very not Brothers Grimm way to end a story. But, which by the way, the Beast and the Woodsman relationship is also a perfect example about how you can't take things at face value. Because the Woodsman believed the Beast and uh, apparently didn't realize that his daughter had been alive the whole time. Yeah, and I think that it's funny because as much as I say that like this is a really pro-social show, actually, also the way that like Wirt ultimately defeats the Beast is by refusing to play by the beast's rules is by saying wait like your premise is stupid to begin with like like i you don't have me trapped at all like i can just refuse to engage with what you want me to engage with i think it's dumb and you know i think th that you said before that no one <laughs> even though one of the first things that we learn about the beast is that the beast lies like no one ever really considered the possibility that the terms of the game that the beast is playing are in fact themselves a lie dictated by the beast that you can just refuse to agree to. Yeah, and ultimately it, it's one of those things where fear and preconceived notions about the power of this force led one to not really question what is happening here. And to be fair, 
I think something that the show does at the very end sort of accentuates this point. It's never unclear to me at the very end. Like there, there's reason to believe at the very end they do a, I was about to say eulogy, uh, an epilogue for the people who are left back in the unknown. But a song is singing and one of the lyrics is about sweet lies and they show how everybody ended up okay. The woodsman ended up with his daughter, Beatrice's family ended up as humans again. The tea maker ended up with the other woman, the teacher and the her boyfriend were fine. And it leave it opens this question, it's like and yet back in the unknown, these things happened and everybody was satisfied. And I think if you take the show's theme to heart, you should not assume that trope of a happy ever after is actually what happened. It's like where the show itself is telling you, don't listen to me. Yeah. And and there's also the bit about, you know, how when they when they come back to when they come to in the hospital and uh, Greg shakes the frog, his belly glows from where he ate the magical bell in the unknown. So there's several layers of like what is real and what is not like was uh, the unknown just a psychic journey or was it materially real? Um, Did everything turn out all right for people in the unknown or is the show just giving us what we'd rather have? You know, it leads you to question sort of everything about what you've been watching. Yeah, and and I, I, I still don't quite know where I lean. I think Cartoon Network probably wanted a nice ending, like a nice wrap-up for everything. But as, as adults, you can decide for yourselves. No, I actually think that that was a lie that it's sort of inconsistent that the woodsman would believe the beast if his daughter were still alive that those magic scissors don't actually work so i i I think there's enough reason to believe that you should at at the very least challenge that assertion that things end up okay which is not it's not happy but it, it does fit very well with what the show tries to teach us about growing up, seeing through fairy tale happy endings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think just like also overall atmospherically, the show is just so beautiful. It's just so beautifully executed. You know, it's animated beautifully. The voice performances are beautiful. It's it really draws you in with this sort of autumnal, spooky yet tweet. You know, I've I've compared it to uh, Edward Gorey um, books and and drawings as well too. It's a uh, really sort of spooky and macabre while being twee at the same time. Uh, you know, our friend Carl, I think he he described it as dark whimsy. Shout out Carl, uh, and it really just draws you in to this sort of spooky yet cozy atmosphere that's just really perfect for the season. Yeah, it's just like one word, fall. <laughs> just one word, autumn. <laughs> just like wax you in the face with some brown leaves and a pumpkin. Yeah, mm. <laughs> very, 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 very sexy fall here. Um, I I think ultimately there's not a lot to say about the social structure or anything of the show because for the most part it's very inconsistent and and sort of it's implied that all of these people exist in some really loose society but they're also all like autonomous so for the most part I think that, that this has been a fairly good breakdown of the themes and I of course, there's always more that I could say, but I think it's fair enough to, for the uh, for the show to speak more on its own. If you see anything that you're like, wow, I can't believe they missed that, feel free to comment or let us know. There's always space for that. It's always very nice to hear from people if you if you care to let us know. 
overall, I would say uh, that's really all I've got to say about the show. And otherwise, I really think you should just watch it. It's like we said at the beginning, it's really worth your time. It's all on Hulu, so it's super convenient to watch and you can get it done in an evening. Yeah, I again, A+. Plus. Uh, go watch it. it. It's been a pleasure revisiting it. And this is where I, my commentary is signing off. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as usual, thanks so much for joining us on this. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It will really help other people find the show. Uh, you can also, if you want to send us any of those comments about anything that we missed or you just want to chat with us, uh, you can reach us on Facebook at Animates Podcast, tweet us at Animates, or send us an email, animates at gmail.com with the numeral eight in there. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. I've been Paige. And I've been Chris. And this has been Animates.